In today's episode, I chatted with Joe Cheatham. Joe is a campaigner who was one of the driving forces behind getting the sun to end page three. It's only happened in the recent past, even though it seems something that belongs centuries ago. Joe is also the author of a book, Killjoy, about that journey. In this conversation, Joe and I chatted about how she never really set out to be a campaigner or the face of change or someone at the forefront of changing our culture and our society. She just started to look around and ask questions about why is the world this way? And is there a better way for it to be? Could things be different? And how can I help make things different? In the process, she found people to go on this journey with. She found a space where her voice could make change and she found herself at the front of really changing our society. I hope listening to Jo's story or reading it if you choose to buy her book will inspire you the way it inspired me. I just wanna be best friends with Jo. I think she's so cool. And so much of what she talks about is just so real and so relatable. So often stories of the people who are driving for change feel so unattainable, so lofty, so beyond what is possible for those of us who are taking a walk and listening to this. But Jo just feels like someone you would be friends with, someone who's going through the same things you are, who has the same insecurities and fears as the rest of us, and who found a way to keep going and to keep driving for a better world. Jo, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. So to get us started, we don't like to define people. We let people define themselves, introduce themselves, how they want people to know them. So how would you like to introduce yourself? So I'm Jo. Um, I'm a writer. Before that, I was kind of an academic for a bit. And in between those two things, I was a campaigner for No More Page 3, which was a campaign that asked the editor of the Sun newspaper to stop printing the pictures of topless women that had appeared every weekday in the paper since 1970. And how did you get on your journey? So I read your book, I love your book. It felt like chatting to a friend and I was telling the team over here before this, I, was like, I just wanna be friends with Jo. She seems great. <laughs> she seems like one of us. Um, but your journey into campaigning also wasn't, in my mind at least, like an activist is person who's always like known exactly what they wanna fight for and they, they have a clear path ahead of them, which is something I've relearned constantly as I meet people who have campaigned for different things. But you've had a journey as well, which is not like a straight line into it where you were like, all right, going to take on page three since I was a child. Then I went off and I did it. So could you talk a little bit about how you got into it? Yeah, honestly, it was kind of by mistake. I didn't ever mean to be any kind of activist or campaigner. You know, I didn't really even know that that kind of existed as a thing that people did you know we've got sort of Malala she'll sort things out Greta she'll do stuff but this was back in 2012 and I was a student I was a, a childminder and I didn't consider myself like assertive or even particularly political or anything you know I was just kind of getting on with my life and I just heard about this campaign and it had been set up by a writer named Lucianne Holmes and I read about it in a newspaper and I ended up going to a protest, actually, because I wanted to just get out of my house. I'd had a series of horrible events. I'd had a really bad weekend. And I thought, look, I'll just go and see what this protest is about. I've seen protests on TV. You know, it's going to be loads of people with big signs and megaphones and shouting stuff. I'll buy a, like a, a coffee from Costa, lurk about at the back of it, see what's going on, and then just go home. And I'll feel good about myself because I've done something, but really, to be honest, I had no intention of actually doing anything. And uh, I went to this protest and there was me, Lucy, 
and two other people there. So suddenly, and there were press photographers there. So suddenly I was <laughs> like on this front line of this campaign, holding a sign somebody else had given me that they'd made at home, you know, with people taking photos with these giant cameras and asking questions. And I didn't mean to be there. I didn't know what I was doing. I was horrified, truly, completely, utterly horrified. Like it was the worst day ever for me. My worst nightmare is ever having anyone take a picture of me and then thinking that it's gonna be on the internet. I just died inside. But after that moment, you know, I got talking to Lucy. We ended up staying in touch and being friends. And then a few months later, she said, this is really hard to do on my own. So I'm just reaching out to anyone who's turned up to a thing I've done or has been in touch with me to see if you wanna maybe start a campaign team and try and do it together. And that's really how I ended up as part of the team. And the, it, it's like, it's wild also to think about you showing up just to get out of the house and suddenly you are like the face of a movement. And I imagine you didn't leave the house thinking that was going to happen that day. And it's also the thing of like, you chose to just stay in touch with Lucy, but what's striking is also like, it stayed in your mind, right? It wasn't something that you like, it, I imagine, well, tell, you tell me, did it stay in your mind because it was just like such an unexpected day in your life or also because you couldn't stop thinking about, about page three and like, oh, this is actually widespread, it's everywhere and I want to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, I grew up um, in a council house in Rotherham and The Sun was the only newspaper I ever saw. I'm not exaggerating here. I never saw another newspaper until I was about 11 and we were going on holiday for the first ever time. We went to Tenerife, it was exciting. And at the airport, they had all of these newspapers. And I thought, oh, this is weird. They've, there's other ones out there. So I grew up, I mean, I was born in 1980, so there was no internet, you know, or anything like that. I grew up just seeing this picture, page three in the sun, at home, at school, in every shop, in all my mates' houses. I saw it everywhere. You know, you go to the chip shop and they wrap your chips sometimes in page three. So you get like chips and tits for tea, which was weird. And it was a time when, I mean, we got so much harassment every single day. The eighties and nineties, especially in sort of a, a post-industrial Northern town, it wasn't a great time or place to be a girl. We'd walk to school, people would shout to us out of cars. You get to school, the boys would bring page three in you know, and like shove it in your face, rape the girls against the model. The teachers sometimes had the son. You know, I went into the deputy head's office once and he got the son open at page three on his desk. And back at that point, the models were sometimes 16 years old. So you've got models that are effectively children. They're our age. There's a lot of sexual harassment and of course a lot of sexual abuse actually, you know, that was happening in towns like Rotherham. And I'd always hated, I'd hated page three my entire life, but I never thought there was anything that, you know, we could do about it. As, you know, I didn't think that no, normal people, whatever that means, have any power to change anything like that. And it'd been in the back of my mind for a long time. And I moved to London and I just had a lot of kind of series of horrible events happen in a short space of time. You know, lots of street harassment, lots of just horrible sort of, you know, episodes of what we now call everyday sexism. Yeah. And yeah, I went to this protest. And from that point, I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. 
I started thinking about my childhood, thinking about all of the times I'd been kind of grabbed or groped at work, in bars, in pubs. And I just thought, what is this picture that's in our biggest selling national newspaper? What's it saying about a woman's role in society in comparison to a man's role? You know, you never got men naked in the paper. It was all politicians and footballers wearing clothes, doing stuff. And then just this massive picture of a really young, usually thin white woman with long hair, sort of semi-naked. And I just could not stop thinking about it. Couldn't stop thinking about it. It's also like, I, I feel really stupid saying this, but it's really striking that, and I think I, I'm the same, many of us are the same way. There's something wrong and you want to change it, but it, it's like, it's courage, it's imagination, it's hope that things can change, right? And like, I imagine seeing some of it around you, whether it's within your own family or within like your peers or being the first person to do something and realizing, oh, there isn't just one story, we can actually change the story. And was there like a moment for you or a person or a place or something that was like the the, the key turn in your head and you were like, oh, actually it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, it was Lucy who started the campaign. I remember the first time I'd read about it in a newspaper, not The Sun, I'd like to point out, a different one. And um, I just saw this picture of her and she was standing on a street wearing this No More Page 3 t-shirt and she was just standing in the middle of the street. You know, she looked so confident and she had just started this campaign at home with her 18-year-old niece, just started on Facebook and on change.org, just started a petition and I just thought it was absolutely amazing. I, I remember looking at this picture and reading the article and thinking, wow, we're allowed to do that. <laughs> you know, we can do that. We can just start a petition. We can just start a campaign. I thought you would have had to have had some kind of sociology degree to start a campaign or like a PR team yeah. or something. And she's just this ordinary person who just got so annoyed and so sort of full of rage, just about a million issues, but this token issue, that she just decided to do something about it. And I just, I was shocked because I'd never seen anybody do anything like that ever. I didn't know it was a thing we could just do. And you guys like, st you stayed with it, right? Where I think, and I know like shame to anyone who doesn't stay with it because it's hard, where at the beginning, it. From what you've written and what I remember at that time, you didn't get attention for a while or the attention, like it seemed like the, the like what you described, the cameras were all there, but there were five of you at the protest. <laughs> you were, hey, we'll, we'll hook you up again tomorrow and try again. Like we're not going to give up. And there was that perseverance and that like resilience as well that we're not done and we will be listened to, which is just like, it's inspiring. And also it must have like, it must have actually been hard. I imagine of like, when will they, when will they listen to us? Absolutely. I mean, the thing that kept us going was each other. So it was a really unique situation because the campaign, I mean, we had no money. All of us were so critically skint. We could never even afford the bus fares. We could meet anywhere. So we did all of the planning on a private Facebook group and we'd never even met each other. You know, Lucy had met a few of us at different events, but we hadn't met each other we were scattered across the country. We were mainly working class women, but we weren't all working class, we weren't all women. But, you know, we were mainly working class women who'd grown up with the sun in our houses. But we weren't friends to begin with, and none of us had any experience of campaigning. 
at all. But we were thrown into this really bizarre situation. And I think we made each other brave. And I think Lucy's optimism was so infectious. I've never met anyone that positive in my whole life. You know, I mean, I come from a northern town and the thing is being self-deprecating and being a bit cynical, you know, that's what we're like. But Lucy was just, she's got the energy of, of like a tiny, excited puppy, you know. <laughs> And I mean, we got, there were so many trolls. There was so much horrible stuff to deal with every day. And Lucy would just get back up. Every single time we were knocked down, she'd just get back up like, right, come on, we can do this. Come on, team. Let's sort of think, how can she keep, she's like a primary school teacher energy, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think we all just like rose up to meet her really and to try and not let her down. And then we were, trying to be brave for each other and trying to do stuff that would impress the other person. You know, we wanted each other to be proud of what we were doing, I think. And that's what kept us going. It, it also just like sounds like you were also invested in each other's success and happiness. And like it, from what you described, it was also like a little bit of an unexpected group of people where you had a man in there, which I would not have expected. Um, <laughs> my own bias and made me confronted of like oh okay this this is a, a mix of people from unexpected parts of the country unexpected like walks of life um different genders different like life situations and the thing that struck me also at least what you write about is so often the way it's and it's changing thankfully because of your work and our work of like this stuff isn't just like isolated events right it isn't just like being catcalled once it's it's someone once described it to me it's like it's not the shark it's the water it's like it's all around us and we need to like confront that it's everywhere and it's systemic and all that but because of that you are also all going through things and like working through a lot of stuff in your own lives so you had to deal with both like the patriarchy as it existed around you and then also be the face of like feminism on the other <laughs> for the rest of the country <laughs> yeah absolutely and I think the thing is as well, we all came to it having not only no experience of campaigning, but really no idea what even feminism was. I mean, this is 2012, so it's before it kind of became cool, right? It was just on the cusp of, you know, having like t-shirts that you can buy in shops and stuff like that. So we were all in a situation where we kind of all had this realization at once that exactly as you said, there's something going on. There's something in the air or the water. It's around us. It's a million little things. And we were kind of joining the dots and, you know, working out what that meant in terms of our own lives and in terms of what was going on in society in general. And at the same time, we had this space where suddenly we could all have these discussions because nobody I knew in my own life was having these kinds of discussions. Um, and then all of a sudden, there were all these other people who were kind of going through the same thought process and having the same kind of experiences in their daily lives. And it just opened up these incredible conversations that I've never had before with anyone in my life. And we really quickly created this sort of support system for each other, I think. And it meant that the things that we were going through in our own personal lives, in addition to the campaign, we had, we felt like we had kind of backup 
really. We had other people there to support us who would understand um, and kind of put it into a context and be able to really offer support. You know, we got, some of us were single parents, some of us were going through divorces, we were going through um, abuse in our relationships, we were going through all kinds of stuff at the same time as we were campaigning. And I just think this this group that, that we somehow ended up being part of is supposed to us through not only all the kind of trials and tribulations of campaigning, but through all the stuff that was going on in our lives as well. And the, the way you describe it, 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 like, you guys were so human with each other, which sounds really silly to some, like, to some level, why wouldn't you be human? But I have found sometimes that when you enter spaces, especially online now where everyone on Instagram has an opinion um, of like, there's a air quoting perfect, perfect way of like being the perfect feminist or like having, having like living entirely by the book of like, this is what it should be. Whereas you understood that life happens and we're all human and we're just like trying our best. And it's really hard to try your best as a single parent or someone in an abusive relationship or someone going through a divorce like there is no blueprint for how to do it well and how to do it well in a world that isn't really set up to support you at all yeah of course that's completely true and i mean the thing is even if there was a book to go by none of us had read it (laughs) we didn't we didn't know anything about gloria steinem or betty friedan you know and we didn't know about other campaigns that were going on at the beginning we did as we went along but we were kind of learning on the job you know we had no idea genuinely we really did not have a clue about anything it feels like now we're in um such a different universe aren't we i mean if you think back to 2012 it feels like a, just like you're looking at a history book like you're looking at 200 years ago it's almost like we're reading about the tudors to think it was before Brexit and before Trump and be- just every, it was a different universe back then. And really we were just kind of making it up as we went along. And I actually think that was part of the joy of it really. Yeah. Cause we didn't have a plan and we didn't know how we were supposed to be doing it. And I think that made the friendship sort of tighter between us as well. Cause we were kind of thrown into it completely in the dark about what was going on. And also there was kind of a naivety to it that was quite, with hindsight, was quite sweet. You know, I, I look back and think, we didn't know. We didn't have a clue what we were doing. But also, like, how could you, right? Like, how could anyone? You, that's that's what, like, in some ways, I guess, enabled you to do it. Because if you knew just how ridiculous it would all be, it would have made it so much, I, I imagine you would still do it, but it would have made it, like, much harder and much more daunting to, like, go into it, knowing everything that was coming. Oh, definitely. I mean, I didn't really even use social media. Um, I had a Facebook account, but I went on it once a year and never posted anything myself. It was just to like, you know, look at somebody's brother who I fancied or to look at what my dental nurse was doing on holiday or something. So I didn't even know, I didn't even know what internet trolls were until the campaign. And there's no way, if I'd known what it was gonna be like, I wouldn't have ever dared turn up for the protest ever dared post anything on social media i just wouldn't have dared do any of it so i'm glad i didn't know (laughs) (laughs) it's also really interesting that you write so like honestly about how scary it was to use your voice in like so many different parts of your life where you talk about like trying to and finishing your phd and like all the 
all the struggles and for people who haven't read your book, if, if it's okay for you to share it, like I don't want to <laughs> rehash anything that was too traumatic, but like it's just like a really tough time, like really hard to like believe in, in yourself when everyone just looked different, sounded different, sounded like they knew what they were talking about, even if they were full of shit. And <laughs> that's just me extrapolating from my own experiences in academia, but like, and and then on top of that, you were like, not only am I going to speak up in this world, but I'm also going to go out and do this other thing, which is all about owning my voice. Oh, honestly, at school, I had the worst attendance in my whole year. Um, I never used to go to school because I was terrified of ever having to speak out in class. And yeah, I didn't really go to school very often because I just was terrified of ever having to say anything basically. I was bullied all through school. So, I mean, that makes it not a fun environment. But I, I used to just be terrified of being kind of called out by a teacher, you know, to answer a question or something. And I genuinely had never, I'd never answered in class. I'd never said anything by the time I left school at 16. Um, I just used to avoid any situation where I had to ever speak. But I ended up weirdly kind of doing my A-levels and then going to university and then just staying at university forever. You know, I did all the university. So I did an MA and then I did a PhD. And of course, when you get to that kind of level, you have to go and speak at conferences and do all kinds of things. And I mean, I hated it so much. I was a nervous wreck. And my coping mechanism was just to make myself physically ill so I couldn't go. Or if I did go, to just literally run away before it was my time to my turn to speak, which I actually did a, a couple of times. But I felt so uncomfortable, not just because you know I'm, I'm northern and I felt a bit different, or because I'm a woman and I felt a bit different. But my university, I even I just didn't know that people so posh existed in real life. I didn't know. I mean, I ended up doing art history, which I didn't know at the time is probably the poshest degree you could do. I mean, it's what Kate Middleton did. It's what people do who own art. You know, I didn't know that. Um, but it was a different level of wealth and privilege to one I'd even ever even seen on TV. Everyone seemed to be so tall with such strong, healthy hair, like they were off some kind of L'Oreal advert. And my university used to host, um, it was at Somerset House in London, they used to host London Fashion Week. So every year, you'd start back in September, and there'd be supermodels everywhere. And you'd have to just like, I'm five foot two, and I'm from Rotherham, and I have to like shuffle past, so sorry, you know, just all these perfect women. And then in the conferences, it felt like it was all men who would do all the talking. Obviously, you'd have women presenting papers, but you know those people from the very bowels of hell who will sit there and go, like, I don't have a, a, a question, it's more of a comment, really. It was just wall-to-wall -wall those people. And they were all men in, like, linen trousers, ludicrously posh, who all seemed to be called Julian and had been to, like, Harrow and Eton. And I just felt like I was a different kind of animal in the zoo. You know, like I was a panda and everybody else was a tiger. Just like we shouldn't ever meet. Um, so, I mean, it was a nightmare. And I had that going on at the same time as the campaign stuff. And then, of course, you start doing campaign stuff and everybody wants you to talk about it all the time. 
Yeah. So it was just a constant, a constant worst nightmare for me. You just lived your worst nightmare for a series of years. For loads and loads of years, every day, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it must have been a lot also that like you were going on TV and you were going on the radio and was there was there a point when you were like having these like going back into university and like dealing with the Julians around you where they were like, I saw you or like I listened I didn't see you on the radio that would be weird. I listened <laughs> on the radio like I heard you on BBC Four yesterday. Did that ever happen or were those two lives like separate because those people were just like not as? Now I'm thinking. I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent that I didn't think. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like surely they they should have cared as people studying art history because this is like representation of women that you were you were dealing with like in present day and that should be like a straight line for them to be like oh let's look at you know what's happening here did they care were, like were you coming back into this very different world you were in and people were like oh i, I had the thing you're doing and i would love a t-shirt or were they just like separate worlds right what's interesting is my supervisor loved the campaign she was mm. all over it. She was so fascinated by it. And I did have some really good friends at university, luckily, and they were all really interested and involved. But what was so interesting is that the degree of poshness and privilege that most people that I knew, not my direct mates, but the rest of the people in my, you know, seminars and things had, it meant that they didn't understand why I had a problem with page three and at first I thought this is weird why do they not understand and then I realized it's because they never saw the sun really you know if you grow up in if you grow up in a place like Richmond in London you know or you grow up in Belgravia you're not seeing the sun every day at the chip shop and on your table and at your local comprehensive school you're just not seeing it so they'd say oh it does that still exist oh I, I've never actually seen the sun you know or a couple of them have said well I'd seen it on the tube but, you know, it's not really a thing that, that, you know, is part of my life. And I thought that just shows what a class issue yeah. it was because it's all I ever saw. Yeah. And, of course, the women who were on page three were almost always working class women. Yeah. And it really was. It was a class thing. And I didn't really realise how much of a class thing it was until I was surrounded by all of these people who had such a different life. You know, if you've been to boarding school in Switzerland... And you've got a four-story town house in Fitzrovia. You're really not going to sit and look at the sun every day. It's not going to be the direct part of your life like it was for me. It, it also like it's still like how how could people not care even if it wasn't a direct part of their life? But that's a little separate. <laughs> but it it makes me think of the thing you wrote about how it like it the sun was like symbolic and not just symbolic, but it also like symbolized a wider cultural thing, right? If, how women are viewed in society in terms of what jobs are available for women. It's either you are sexualized or you are caring for other people. And that's basically like A or B, take your pick. And for for the people, the wealthy people around you, it was a different like set of options, I guess, that they were even like looking at. Whereas for most people, that is how women are viewed. These are the two options. Completely. And so in addition to, you know, all of the everyday sexism that I had at school and seeing the sun everywhere, I mean, we had as girls in Rotherham in the 80s, absolutely no career aspirations. We were not told that we could go to university and we could 
be something, you know, we could have these careers. And I mean, in the book, I write about my interview with the careers advisor when I was about 15 at my comprehensive school. And I said, I wanted to go to university. I was so nervous saying that because nobody I knew had ever been. And, you know, you, you feel, I felt so self-conscious thinking, maybe I'm not clever enough. Maybe, you know, this is really far away from what I could probably do, but I'm going to mention it. And I mentioned it. And I should point out that I had really good grades. I had really, really good grades. And he said... You don't have to point that out. Like, <laughs> the problem is your grades. Just to say that. But I just felt like I'd done all of the things that should allow me a place at university. I'd worked hard. I got the good grades. I'm sat there with the careers advisor. That was his job title, to advise me on a career at school. And he said... Um, you know, a lot of girls go to university and it costs them a lot of money, but then they end up getting married and having children and it's a waste of money and then they just stay at home. And, you know, it was basically saying to me, do you really want to throw all of that money away? And then this was a time when you had to do work experience and he gave me these papers and said, you can do work experience at the shoe shop that's opening just outside Rotherham, you know, and that was it. That was my career's advice, basically don't think about university just wait for a man to impregnate you save a bit of money work in a shoe shop so we had no careers support or advice we've seen these pictures churned out every single day of girls from our kind of background you know just sexualized in in a paper you know completely objectified and then when i did actually go to the job center to try and find part-time work it's exactly as you said it was, this was back in the 90s when they could legally advertise uh, sex work in job centers. And I am in no way dissing sex work whatsoever. If that's a choice that you make, because that's what you want to do, absolutely brilliant. But if you're actually 18, you want to go to university, you're told not to go, there's no job opportunities. And you get to the job center where they're kind of in a position of power over you. And I saw jobs it was when they used to have like cards stuck to the wall rather than a fancy computer system. It was adverts uh, for sex line workers, for lap dancers, for escort agencies. And then there were maybe two jobs uh, for care work and maybe one cleaning job. And all of those, they want you to have prior experience. And I just thought, this is literally it. This is all that we've got. You know, this, this is it. And that's really... I think what I was thinking about when I realized that the other people that I was studying with didn't care about page three, they didn't understand why I was bothered about it because they had all of these other options. You know, great if you want to be a care worker, we need them more than probably almost any other profession. Great if you want to be a sex worker, great if you want to go to university, like whatever, if you've got the options. But if you're in a really difficult situation, you've got no money, you've got no kind of support in terms of career choices or anything like that and you've been given this tiny slender sort of really crappy selection of options there it was grim and it's so grim that if you try to look elsewhere and go to your career advisor type person who is supposed to show you the options right it's they're not interested in helping you see options or they don't see the options themselves in that there's only one story for working class girls from the north. There's only one story for women, right? And it's 
or there's like one and a half stories and you can pick one or the other. And that's the only way you could see forward. But you made a way out of it. <laughs> well, I think actually it did me a favor, that absolutely abysmal careers advice session, because I was so angry. I thought, right, screw you. I'm going to university. I'll show you. And that's why I went and just stayed. It truly is. It's that simple. I didn't have a burning desire to be an academic. I just wanted to prove a point. I wanted to prove that, you know, a girl like me could go to university. And then I did. And then I thought, right, well, I want to prove I can stay. So I did. And I kept on until basically they threw me out because I'd done everything. I, what can you do? After, I don't know. But um, it just made me so angry that that's what kind of galvanized me really to prove what I could do. And I think possibly that was part of unconsciously, you know, without realizing it, I think that part of, of that pushed me with the campaign as well. Was it to prove to people that you could? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because again, I'd never seen anyone campaigning. I'd never really even heard anybody talking about page three or these issues. I really hadn't, not from my kind of background. People hated it. Yeah. But we but... were having open conversations about that. Well, it doesn't really feel like, I mean, even when you said this was 2012 and page three ended 2015, that was less than 10 years ago when you think about it, that we had topless women on a, on a page of a newspaper every single day. Like, it's actually wild to think it wasn't that long ago. Like, a 10-year-old was alive when that was happening. Isn't it weird? And that they only raised the age limit to 18 years, you know, you had to be over 18 in 2003 because the law changed. That's not that long ago. To think that 20 years ago, they effectively had pictures of children in the paper. I mean, it really wasn't that long ago. And it, it like, when we think about like the, I don't like framing it as a fight, but like the conversation around patriarchy and misogyny and sexism and all of that and where we are now, which feels like two steps forward, but also it's like, how is the world so broken? And then when you look at that, it's like, oh yes, well, of course we're only maybe one or two steps ahead because until 10 years ago, this was media consumption all around us. Yeah, you know what's interesting though, that so many people I speak to, mainly men, but not all men, um, still now have no idea what my problem was slash is with it still. They'll say, this happened to me literally a week ago. You know, a man said to me, yeah, what's your problem? Why are you so weird about nudity? It's not about nudity. I don't know if he genuinely thought that I had a problem with nudity or if he was just trying to be difficult or you know, trying to simplify. I, I have no idea what it was. But obviously it's not about nudity. You know, none of us had a problem with nudity at all. But page three wasn't actually about nudity, was it? Otherwise you'd have naked men you have people of all genders of all body types of all ages of all ethnicities on there and that's not what it was about at all and the thing that you write so eloquently about is also the power dynamic of young working class women who were predominantly the ones featured on there and like the thing about who is the gays and like who's doing the the viewing the watching the consuming and who is whose body is like up for consumption basically 
Yeah, and I mean, there was a feature called News in Briefs, where, and this was horrific. So to begin with, News in Briefs, it was supposed to be a joke. So uh, an editor would write a little, it was a speech bubble, basically. So you'd have the model there, semi-naked in a kind of provocative pose, and you'd have a little speech bubble. And the model would be seen to be saying something intelligent about French literature or the Hadron Collider. And it was supposed to be hilarious because obviously she's a working class woman with big tits, so she can't think anything clever about the Hadron Collider. And then they changed News in Briefs and it actually probably became even worse at that point. And then they used it to kind of promote the the beliefs and ideals of the paper. So you'd have a top, it was so weird. I mean, having this conversation, it sounds like I'm making it up because it's so creepy and so bizarre, but they would have a, a topless or sometimes, you know, naked woman with a speech bubble and she'd be saying something about benefit sheets or about immigration to back up, you know, all of the stories in the paper and their line on everything. And of course, the model had never said this, probably really didn't believe this. And I thought, what? I mean, what a creepy thing to do. What a creepy, what are they trying to do? Hypnotize men. <laughs> you know, like, here's some boobs and here's what to think about immigrants. It was dark and weird, just so weird. And these women, I I don't know, but I imagine had very little agency in what what was put beside beside their faces and their bodies, right? It wasn't like, hey, yes, this is my son's an immigration. Thank you so much for interviewing me yeah. while photographing me naked. That wasn't how it went down, I imagine. That was not how it went down. But saying that, you know, a lot of the models who were on page three loved their job. They loved their job. <laughs> and, you know, we never had a problem with the models or with topless modeling or anything like that at all. For us, it was the context. It was the context of these images being in the biggest national newspaper and what that said about a woman's role in society in comparison to, to a man's. And there's there's something about also the like, I my first reaction has always been like, well, so many, like it goes through so many layers, right? Like so many people have to say yes for a thing to keep continuing. If like there's a roadblock and some one person was like, actually, you know, this doesn't make sense. So many other people have to still keep saying yes um, for that person to be shut down. But then the thing that you all brought up was the, the counter argument was always, well, it sells papers, which is also just, it's just wild that that's yep. the phrase. Yes, right women's bodies you know teenage women's bodies is making us money so we're going to carry on you know we're supposed to applaud well done i'm so pleased for you because you know rupert murdoch did need more money obviously so great it, it was just such a thin argument that it didn't even count as an argument really did it and it's like things are getting better but it it also then i'm like things things are getting better and we live in a in a different enough world but also things aren't that much further along, even if there is no more page three, which is what's scary because it's the same arguments used just in different contexts and in different rooms now. Absolutely, yeah. And of course, you know, when I was growing up and page three was awful and it was part of my daily life, I didn't have, you know, internet porn and all that kind of stuff going on. And that wasn't part of my life or my experience. And a lot of the online misogyny that we're experiencing now, it wasn't 
it, it wasn't there to that degree in 2012. So there's a lot of things that do seem like they're bigger problems now. Um, but I still think things are, I, I'm just, I'm, maybe because of Lucy, maybe Lucy made me an eternal optimist, but I do think things are getting better, but very slowly. And I do think they will continue to get better, but probably very what, slowly. What gives you hope? Like what, what, like, is there anything specific right now in this moment today, they were recording that like you turn to, cause I, I really struggle when people ask me this, I'm like in the world, is that a weird thing to say? But like, what gives you hope when you look at, I'm with you, I'm a big believer in like, you know, the arc of history bends toward justice. And like, when you look at the world and the state of the world, the fact that I'm here and able to have this conversation with you, our grandmothers couldn't do that. So things are getting better. Yeah, so like things are, I'm with you that things are getting better, right? I think a lot about generationally and like my grandmothers had very little rights compared to me and were married when they were teenagers and couldn't have jobs and all. They're like, the world is entirely different. Um, and also it's really hard to like remain hopeful unless you have a Lucy in your life, I think, mm -hmm. who who's like championing it. So for the like for the baby activists out there, for the young women who are watching this and saying, oh, that like, this gives me hope, but what, what's giving you hope, right? Like you changed something, but what's giving you hope right now, given the world feels like it's on fire constantly? Honestly, it's younger women and, and younger people in general who are giving me hope. I have nieces and nephews aged between 13 and 25, and they are amazing. And I mean, this it could almost be some kind of psychological experiment because they live in the same part of Rotherham. They're going to the same school that I went to with the abysmal careers advice, etc. And their attitudes to everything is just beautiful to watch. It's just lovely. I mean, I just, honestly, they're just so they're just light years ahead of of where we were when we were teenagers. They're much more respectful of each other. Just my my nephew wore pride shoelaces and it made me just almost weep because it was just so good. Like the, the tolerance that these young kids have and the respect that they have for their own bodies, for, you know, personal boundaries, just the kindness that they they display to each other. I just, I just think they're amazing. That's what gives me hope. And all of the brilliant young women who are running campaigns and who are doing all these incredible things, the body positivity movement, all this stuff that did not exist when I was a teenager that I needed. And I mean, I think I need it now. We all need it now. I, I just think it's the younger, it's the younger people that just inspire me so much. It, it is it is like a beautiful thing how much feels like it has changed it changes with every every generation or it has changed like every 10 years like looking back it again like looking back at what you helped make happen 10 years ago it's wild to think how far we've come in some sense which is it's a nice perspective shift um if you like if your niece or nephew were at the beginning of their journey or like thinking about an 18 year old or a 25 year old who's going to be watching this and is starting to think about like, have a voice, I want to use it, and I want to change something. Is, is there advice that you wish you could have gotten when you were getting going or that you would want to give someone? I think the most important thing is to have some kind of support. 
that's what made our campaign successful. It was the friendships that we had. So if you're doing it on your own, make sure you've got some good friends or just anyone who can support you because you'll need it. And also I think just for anyone who's speaking out about anything, whether it's some kind of issue or whether you literally have to do a GCSE presentation at school, I think it just helps to really recognize that nobody cares. <laughs> that is so liberating for me. <laughs> And I don't mean nobody cares if you're running a campaign, like, oh, don't bother. I don't mean that. I mean about the small details of you doing any kind of speech. People are sat there and they're listening, but they're also thinking of a million things. You know, they're thinking, oh, did I empty the cat litter tray? Oh, what time am I meeting my friend? Oh, I better check Twitter. They're not really fully focused on you the way that you think that they are when you're in a position, you know, where you stood in front of everyone and it feels horrible. You know, no, everyone's going to forget in a few hours. And I, although that sounds depressing, I think that was really liberating. That's the only way I can get through doing anything. I just think, well, everybody's thinking about what they forgot to buy at the shop. You know, no one's really paying attention. They don't care. They're not that bothered. If my hair looks weird, they don't care. Only I care. And if everyone else has to present, the thing I try to remember is also, they're all probably freaking out about their own, like having to go up there and do the thing or what they want to say. Or if they're very confident what they want to say and interrupt you or like what they're, how they're going to respond to you. So no one's actually listening. Exactly. And I think that's really liberating. It's really, really liberating because no one's really paying attention like you probably think they are. It's, it, which also like we hope they are paying attention to, their pay <laughs> to like what you're saying and not like what, what little things are going on in your mind about how you look while you're saying it or like the, the stumble you made or how you sound or any of that stuff. Exactly. Hopefully they, you know, they're listening to the message, but they don't care, you know, if you're wearing a top that doesn't match with your jeans or, you know, if you've got eye makeup all down your face, they don't care about that. The very like empowering thing. I'm going to remember this the next time I get nervous about going to catch up. <laughs> no one cares. Um, no one cares. To wrap it up. All right. So this is called Little Revolutions with the idea being that, as you know very well, that so much of this is systemic, right? It's like in the air, in the water, it's much bigger than any one of us. But we all also do have power. We have agency, right? It would be so meaningless if we didn't. Um, and we, we can all change things, but it can be done in like the daily and the small things. It can sometimes feel so daunting when you have to like look at something like a page three or the whatever the big thing is that you're trying to like contend with um, and think, well, I can't take that down, right? Like I cannot change a system. I can't change how the world views me or how like how this place is set up or you know the wealth disparity where I live or how we treat migrants or whatever it is like they, everything is still so much bigger than one person but we can do little things so if, if someone is listening to this and is just like I want to use my voice or I want to change something around me no idea where to start like how would you you know what's the little thing that people can do I hate asking for one thing because sometimes people have 17 things and <laughs> nothing should ever be boiled down to one thing but thinking about like the little revolutions that people can make around them whether it's in their own lives with their communities with their families are there things that come to mind for you this is going to sound so simplistic but the honestly the biggest thing that I've done that's changed the way I feel about myself and what I'm capable of doing in the world is I just stopped about a year and a half ago. I just stopped suddenly at like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. I thought, right, I'm gonna stop now forever saying anything bad about the way I look. 
And I know that sounds really simple, but I was in the car. One of my best friends is 29 and she's so beautiful that looking at her kind of burns your eyes. She's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And she was sat there in the car and she was saying, God, I look so old. I look so old and my hair's gone so flat. Oh, I look awful today. And I looked at her and I'm like, I'm in my 40s. If you're saying that you look old, how do you think that makes me feel? And also you're perfect and I'm so boring that we're even still having these conversations. And I just thought all the time that I take up saying bad stuff about myself and then the effect that that has on the other people around me. Because if I'm saying, oh God, you know, look at the state of me today. Don't I look tired? Oh, look at my hair. Then that means that the person I'm saying it to is going to start thinking about how they look. They're going to waste energy trying to make me feel better. And men aren't doing this. I've just, <laughs> I've got loads oh. of, loads of really good mates that are men. I go out to the pub with them. None of them ever go, oh God, look at the state of me. My face has gone puffy. I don't know what, no one has ever, they've never said that to me. You just blew my mind there. I never <laughs> Think of all the, all the stuff that they're getting done while they're not complaining about what they look like. And even though sometimes I would look in the mirror and I think, oh God, I look like an absolute bag of turd today. Just not saying it out loud, just stopped me thinking it. And then I went from that point to not saying just negative stuff about what I'm capable of doing anyway. I stopped saying, oh, I'm crap at public speaking. I stopped saying, oh, I'm not eloquent. Oh, you know, I'm rubbish at this, I'm rubbish at doing this. I just stopped saying it. And I think that slowly, if you stop saying it, I really do think it changes the way you think. You stop thinking it so much if you stop saying it. And it just frees up time and space around you to talk about other stuff that's way more interesting. I love that. I I love that so much. I, I was saying to someone just today that I, I say I'm bad at like doing X, Y, or Z because it's also stuff that I'm not expected or putting expect to do in my job, but I do a lot and it's like, I'm just going to stop saying I'm bad at it. I'm just going to do it. Even if I'm really rubbish, I, I have to do it. So I'm just going to stop saying I'm bad at it and see if it changes something. Because so many of these things, like even us thinking about how we look, is very cultured into us, right? Like we're so, our worth is so often judged by how we appear and a woman's role is just to like, to be pretty, right? And to like exist in a certain way and look a certain way. And we're not going to change the culture in a, in a big in a big way in doing that but like it's it's lovely to say if i stop saying it maybe my friend will stop saying it or stop thinking it or you know i will push them to think about it which seems tiny but it can be so big it's huge because it means that then you're not talking about aging in a negative way you're not talking about you know how you look in a negative way and it just means that you're talking about other stuff instead like my male friends are yeah wow <laughs> I, I had never thought about, and I know that like men also have insecurities about their bodies, but I had just never thought about that, that men don't talk about how they look and you just blow my mind. <laughs> Thank you for that. Is there anything else I should have asked you that I haven't asked you? No, this has been delightful. Great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I enjoyed this so much. I enjoyed it so much. And I want to be your friend as well, just so you know. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Joe for this wonderful conversation. To learn more about her and her work, check out our show notes. And thank you for listening to Little Revolutions, a podcast brought to you by Frida. I'm Masuma Ahuja, your host and the head of content here at Frida. This episode was produced by Claire Richardson and Marta Mazur. 
and edited by Holly Galloway.